So in 1971, uh, a young man by the name of John Piper, who um, is now a pastor, he is um, an author, a speaker, globally known, um, he is by considered as a joke to many, by many to be the Pope of the Protestant Church. If we have one, his name's John Piper, not John Paul, all right? And, uh, and we don't have a Pope, just so you know. <laughs> Um, but many, as a joke, and to really get on his nerves, I think more than anything, um, consider John Piper has just been a great influencer, especially the people of my generation. And so um, in 1971, John Piper was a seminary student in California at Fuller University. And he said that he walked into um, his class, and in walking into his class, that at the beginning of the class, his professor came by to each one of him, them as students and handed them a dollar bill. And he said, if you don't hear anything else that I say today while I'm speaking, I want you to consider the words that I'm saying while clinching that dollar bill and that you would always remember the rich, young man. Always. May it be a lasting illustration in your heart. As we talk about Matthew chapter 19, students, I want you to hold on to that bill and to remember the rich young man. On that same day, John Piper says that he went to his, his house or his dorm room where he was living at the time, and he took that dollar. It so wrecked him. The Holy Spirit so wrecked him in that moment that he went home, and, and he got this frame, and he put this dollar bill in it, and this is before, you know, computers that didn't take up whole rooms. Um, and so he got a pair of scissors and some newspapers, and he cut out like a murder note, I guess, out of the letters out of the newspaper, remember the rich young man, and he, he taped it, and he said shellacked it to that dollar bill in this frame, and it has hung there for the last 30, actually it's 46 years in his study. In 2009, he was speaking to a group of students, and he said, I want to pass on this illustration and legacy to you, and as they came in that day, he handed each of them a dollar. And he said, I'm going to be preaching on Matthew chapter 19. And I want you to always use this as an illustration and a reminder to remember that young man. So as one of my spiritual parents, I continue that legacy with you this morning. Mark my words. This is very serious. And yet most of us will fight the drift or we will drift toward believing that I am not speaking to you. And yet, brothers and sisters, the Lord is. This morning, briefly, I want to give us the 30,000 foot view of this passage and then we're going to hit ground level. In verses 13 through 15, we see this beautiful picture of of Jesus um, with these children. And he is, is with these kids as he is, uh, many people, as, as 
Jesus, if we'll go sit on a, a bunny, a man dressed in a bunny suit at the mall, then you can only imagine the attraction that Jesus is, even if it's toward these children. And Jesus is preaching, he's teaching us, he is the most famous teacher in the land during this time, and small children are coming to Jesus. And as we covered several months ago, children in early Jewish society are considered to be just a step above pets. They don't really have any purpose in society until they become a young man or a young woman. They're just kind of there. They're just kind of present. And, and so Jesus is preaching, he's teaching, but all these kids keep wanting to come to Jesus and the disciples, the bouncers, are trying to keep these small kids from pestering our Lord. And yet Jesus tells us in 13 through 50, what does he say? You got to be like one of these kids. Let, let the little children come to me. So we see this beautiful picture and this illustration of how we should also be, that we should allow little children to come to us. Uh, serving in such things as mission kids should not be um, taxing as much as it should be a privilege to serve them as our Lord. Or to have our own kids should be a blessing and not a curse, even as difficult as it can be. The Lord is saying unto these kids, which he will come back to um, here in just a little bit, that these kids are welcome in my lap. They're welcome for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Then we get to verse 16. In verse 16 it says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And this is this is a great question. Jesus was asked a lot of similar questions in regards to this. People wanted to know what does it mean to have this life. And Jesus, knowing everything about this man, knows this man's heart. He knows his deeds. And like a good debater, he responds to this man's question with a question. And he says, well, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one, meaning God, who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, one thing that Jesus is not saying here, Jesus is not saying that I am not good, that Jesus is not good. He is saying there is only one that is good, and he is God. Jesus just so happens to also be God. It's more about a question of this man's belief. We know that only God is good. So do you believe that I am good? Do you think that God is good? Do you think that Jesus is good? This is more of the aspect that Jesus is coming across when he asks the question, why do, why do you think I am good? Because one of the other gospels even says that the man says when he comes running up to Jesus, good teacher. So Jesus um, commands this young man to what? To follow him, the commands, all right? And, and one of the things that's also interesting is that in the gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that when the man came running up to Jesus and says, good teacher, teacher, um, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That his posture was actually that he came running and when he got close to Jesus, he fell down on his knees and asked this question. Good teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? 
Jesus, there is only one God that is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So how does this young man respond? It's a pretty interesting scene that's taking place here. In verse um, 18, he said to him, um, uh, which ones? Inside the Old Testament, there are the Big Ten commandments that a lot of us know, but there are actually 613 total commandments that kind of play out those Big Ten. And so immediately, this young ruler, um, this young man, looks up at Jesus from his bowed state and says, which ones should I follow. And what does Jesus do? Follow along. And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. So after hearing Jesus, what does the young man do? He tells us in verse 20. All these I have kept. And one of the other gospels telling the same story, he says, man, I have kept these since I was really young. The Bible tells us he's a young man, but he's saying, man, from the time I was a child, I've honored my parents. I have not murdered anyone. I have not committed adultery. And he says, man, all of these I have kept. Yet, what do I still lack? What do I lack? Now, what we learn from the text is that this young man was a Jew among Jews. This brother was great at keeping the law. Notice, Jesus never presses into the idea that this young man has about himself. He never presses into his pride at this moment in regards to keeping this, these laws. I mean, it, it is possible that this man is so self-disciplined in obeying the law that only Jesus did it better. The man wanted something new to do. He knew. He probably had most of the Old Testament memorized. He was living faithfully. He hadn't killed anybody. I mean, hopefully, if we're sitting here, um, a majority of us, if I was to read off some of these, have you killed anybody? You'd be like, check, I haven't done that one. Right? You, you, would, you would say, man, have, have you committed adultery? Well, maybe check, okay? We, we would go through this spiritual checklist of, of this man, and this guy seems to be amazing at following the Old Testament law. And again, Jesus doesn't really press into that. And yet, this man has gotten so confident in his intellect. He's gotten so confident in his ability to do good and to be a good moral young man. I mean, he's astounding. This is the kind of young man that I want as your pastor, right? Or if you were my daughter, Ava, this is the kind of guy you bring home to mama, right? This guy is on it. He doesn't drink, you know, he doesn't chew tobacco, he doesn't smoke, you know, all those things that mamas are looking for, I guess. Um, he doesn't do those things. He is the all-star. He's not the Michael Jordan because he's not the best, but he's He's LeBron James, okay? He, he is an amazing guy at doing the commands. But it wasn't enough. This young man believed he had conquered all these things. 
And yet there was something still out there waiting for him. He wanted a new nugget of information. He wanted something to stir his intellect. He wanted a new challenge that he could, uh, you know, conquer and add to his religious legacy. Simply, Jesus, as this man is kneeling before him, he seems to be humbling as Jesus pounds out these list of commands the man is becoming more and more confident. I've done all these things. I've accomplished all of these things. I mean, I don't know how many young teenagers you've been around, but you don't want to do that long. All right? As all of us in this room, many of us, especially young men, feel like we know it all. That we're invincible. That, that there is nothing, what can my parents teach me? I already know. And I know it better than they do. Right? This is the picture of, of young arrogance and self-confidence and selfish ambition. This drive. And guess what? This dude is a ringer. Like he is good at this. And as Jesus is reading off these things, he's like, man, I, I have got this down. I have done all of these things, but what do I still lack? As this man reaches the height of his arrogance, Jesus says to him, and let's read verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, that term perfect there um, has to do with maturity and completeness, uh, not necessarily the idea that we kind of look at as perfection, but just maturity and completeness, all these sorts of things. Uh, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Great possessions. Let's zoom back into our picture here. This man is hearing these things. I mean, he's dusting off his shoulders. He's swelling with pride. This man has got it. He can be given any task by Jesus. And this guy, this brother, is ready to conquer it. He is ready to show that he is willing to do whatever it takes to have this life, to have this eternal life. All other castles and kingdoms in his life have been conquered. Give me something hard. Give me something difficult. And in that very scene, imagine as this young man is looking up at Jesus in great confidence, and yet our Lord drops a bomb on this guy. At the height of who he thought he was, Jesus, again, knowing what he had already accomplished, but knows even more. He knows more than his good works. He knows his very heart. And in the height of this, Jesus tells this young man, take all of your possessions up into this no idea. We have no idea this man has possessions. We have no idea he's rich. He looks at this, this guy and he says to him, go and sell everything that you have. Don't put that money in U.S. Bank. 
Don't place it in a jar and hide it in the desert. What's he tell him to do with it? Once he gets all the money, then he is supposed to go and to give it to the poor. And then follow after Jesus. And then what does the Bible tell us? The, tell, the Bible tells us in a haunting fashion. When the young man heard this, again, excited, he's running to Jesus. He's, look at what I've done. Look at what's happened. And yet Jesus calls him to something. And, and what happens? When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Great possessions. The word there for sorrowful is, is the idea actually of, of grieving, of great loss. He does not do what Jesus commands him to do. He walks away because he was wealthy. If we continue going here, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty would a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Who can be saved? Jesus is saying that it's easier for a camel to go through the, the eye of a, a needle than for a rich person to enter in the kingdom of heaven. That, now, the paradox of this is that a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. And I don't care what kind of bad teaching you've heard about that in Jerusalem there's this really small entryway into the city and it causes camels to have to get down on their their kneecaps and to waddle into the city there is no such gate what is jesus saying he is saying it is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, therefore, it is infinitely more impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What does he say in verse 25 again? When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And why were they astonished? Who then can be saved? See, brothers and sisters and friends, there's something called what we call the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is this idea that the more obedient that you are, the more that you give of your seed of faith money, the more that God is pleased with you, and therefore he will give you more and more riches. If you want to see the most gracious and most obedient people that whom God loves on the planet, then look at wealthy Christians. This is not invented by TV preachers. The, the idea of the prosperity gospel is not a new tool by sin, Satan, and death in their arsenal. It is something that they have been using since the fall. See, brothers and sisters and friends, it is mistakenly believed by the Jews that if you are wealthy and Jewish, it was because God had shown you much favor and grace that you were the blessed of God. If anybody during this time was going to go to heaven, it was the wealthy Jew. This is what they believed. 
Wow, what could a wealthy Jew do? Well, they could pay, pay alms. They could, they could give money to the poor. And God would be impressed with that, right? They could buy the most perfect of all the perfect sacrifices. So anytime they wanted to, to sacrifice for their sins or give atonement for the sacrificial blood of a lamb, man, they could do that. The wealthy were blessed of God. All of them wanted to be wealthy because they knew if they were wealthy and a Jewish, it meant that God was showing them favor, that he was showing them grace, that he was blessing their life. And Jesus just tells them, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to get into heaven. To get into heaven. Can you imagine if you're sitting there as one of those disciples? I mean, these 12 men who have been following after Jesus, this is what they believe. I mean, they're, they're sitting here listening to the preacher, listening to the rabbi, listening to the teacher, and the Bible tells us here what they are astonished. They are dumbfounded. They are flabbergasted. If anybody is going to be saved and in heaven, it is this rich young man. Look at how obedient he is. He, he is an all-star. He is not JV. He is not the water boy. He is the all-star player when it comes to being obedient to the commands of God. And yet, this is not the way that they were raised. They were, they were raised in that belief, and yet Jesus is going against their upbringing. I mean, this is not the way their grandmothers taught them. Man, this is, this is not the way that the Jewish temple taught us back home. No, no, if you are wealthy and a Jew, that means, man, God has got you. It's the poor you need to feel pity for. It's, it's the poor who are being rotten and they're doing disgusting things. And so God makes them more poor and more poor and more poor and more poor because they are wretched people. Ugh, I hate the poor people. They're disgusting. We, all, we need to be wealthy because being wealthy is a sign of God's grace. And Jesus drops the H-bomb on that idea in this passage. If the rich man does not have favor with God in his good works, then who does? How can anybody be saved? Verse 26, we're going to pick back up kind of next week with the rest of it in the chapter 20. Verse 26, underline this if you have your own Bible. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man... This is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So if we look at the, the context of that passage, that's kind of the, the 30 foot thousand, and we're going to dive into some of the more details here as we go a little bit further here. And I really need God to now transfer not only what's happening there, but that he would speak to us in this moment as well. Brothers and sisters, friends, this young man is Superman. And yet, like Superman, this Superman had kryptonite. I mean, any time that you want to be any other superhero other than Superman, I just, you're ridiculous. I like Batman better too. 
but he's a dude with trinkets. He's a, he's a, you know, upscale James Bond. That's who Batman is. He has no powers of his own. Superman is an alien, okay? He's faster than the Flash. He's got laser beams, x-ray vision. He can, he can fly. I mean, he can do anything all the other ones can do. Superman can do them all. And yet, he had a kryptonite. And as I mentioned earlier, this man was moral. He was disciplined. He was one to be admired. But did anyone notice that when Jesus was listing out those commandments that he needed to follow, it wasn't so much the ones that he listed, it was the ones he left out that Jesus was wanting him to understand. What is the first commandment? And the most important one, have no other God before me. Killed anybody? Check. I ain't killed nobody. Committed adultery? Well, you know, I look at that Babylonian porn every now and then, but that's not the same, right? Check. I've honored my parents. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. I've done that. So the young man could say yes to all of those things, and yet when God says, have no other gods before me, how does he reveal that in this young man? See, the man who was able to follow all the commandments in his own power, in his own morality, was unaware of his failures to keep the first one. This is why God, Jesus, tells this man, this specific man, to sell all of his possessions, give the money to the poor, and to follow him. The man was outwardly moral, but his heart was wicked. Jesus then, in this moment, lays bare the heart of the man to reveal his true God, and it was himself. His own ability to accomplish God's commands. His own wealth, his own identity. All of these things are wrapped up into his possession, in his ability to buy, in his richness. See, a brother and sister, a a person could be moral without Jesus. Did you know that everybody on the planet is created to be moral? Every one of us, though our scales may be different, depending on where we live and our upbringing, all those sorts of things, have a morality scale. I've used this example before. Even the most horrific um, serial killer has morality. If he really loves his mom, he doesn't have a problem killing your mom. But if he really loves his mom and you kill his mom, he's ticked. Why? Because... To some degree, varying differences, we are, we, God created you to be moral. He created you to be able to kind of, true, there's an intrinsic thing with each of us that kind of tells us, man, this is right or this is wrong. And that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is any more in you than he is in that chair that you're sitting there. It's what you were created. He created you. He created us as a moral being. Everyone has an idea of what is right and wrong. One can obey many of the Ten Commandments without Jesus. 
There are lots of lost people who are not, you know, wrestling with whether they should kill somebody today. Thank goodness, right? But the first commandment, have no other God before me. A lost person cannot and will not obey that one without the Holy Spirit in their life. It is impossible for you and I to, to, to worship God in and of our own uh, will, even out of our own desire. We will not do that. Scripture's clear over and over and over again. No one seeks God. We are wretched. Our Father is, is the devil. Apart from Jesus, we, we cannot, we will only have one God. And then it's us apart from the work of the Holy Spirit inside of our lives. This is the most important of all the commandments. Have no other God before you. The rest of them are all the fruit or the expressions. It's because God is my God, I am faithful to my wife. It's because God is my God that I don't have a list of people I'm going to kill. Though I've been tempted to make the list at least. It is, it is by God being my God that even as I get older, my parents get older, that I want to figure out ways to how do I honor them even as an adult. But that is only because God is my God, and that can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. Obey the first commandment, and you will obey all of the others. But it doesn't work in reverse. Not killing someone doesn't, that, that does not work upward in that way. Your ability not to kill someone does not reflect that he is your Lord. It's interesting that in the original language, the emphasis is not on sell everything. The emphasis that Jesus is speaking of is follow me. Follow me. God knows on all other things that this is the one thing his wealth, his riches, his, his self-ability to accomplish greatness, these things are what are going to hinder him from ultimately following after Jesus. With a man held tightly in his hand was great wealth. What he didn't understand was what he owned owned him more he did not understand that jesus is saying follow me and and jesus is saying in order to follow me into eternal life in order to be with me in the loving side of my character and my nature for all of existence then what you have to do young man is you got to you've got to let go of what is owning you in order to follow after me. And yet this young man, he wanted to clinch to his wealth. This man held tightly in his hand his, his great wealth. He did not understand this idea. 
See, if both of our hands and our arms are holding on to our possessions, our homes, our, our, our relationships, our jobs, our positions, then we will never be able to completely follow after Jesus because we'll use excuses like, well, I've got a house and I've got this job and I've got these bills to pay and I've got to, I can't go to Niger. I can't do this. I can't do that because we've got responsibilities and we use these responsibilities, earthly responsibilities responsibilities to trump the responsibility that we ultimately have to be obedient and faithful to God, and yet we will clench so tightly to our wealth. Because I got me this. My hard work got me this. Me being a workaholic got me this. My side jobs got me this. My side hustles got me this. This is something I did with my own hands. I got this. I work hard. They send me a check. This young man came to Jesus and he said, man, I will do anything to have eternal life. Anything. I'm ready to be radical for you, Jesus. Man, whatever you call me to do, this is what I will do. But like the words of that great hymn by Meatloaf, I would do anything for love. But I won't do that. Right? I still don't know what that song's about. All I know is over and over again, I would do anything for love. Y'all follow me now? Y'all are finally like, man, that's in the Bible. All right? He's saying, I, I will do anything to have this, but I, I will not do that. See, his wealth had become his identity because it is something that he could accomplish, he could do to get more of it. And if he had more of it, then that must equal the blessings of God. And yet Mark tells us that before, before throwing this knockout punch to this young man, Mark tells us, that when Jesus responds, and I imagine Jesus doing the kid thing, you know, where you're supposed to get down on their level. And the Bible tells us in Mark that when Jesus says, hey, go sell all your possessions. Give all the money to the poor and follow me. The Gospel of Mark tells us that, that Jesus gazed at the man in love to tell him that. Even though the man is not saved, Jesus has general love for him. He has compassion toward this man. And in love, he, he, he looks at him and he says the most horrific thing to that particular man. He says, man, you've got you to sell all this stuff. You've got you to let go of the money. You've got to let go of the wealth. You've got to let go of the possessions. You've got to let go of your dreams. You've got to let go of what if you're, whether it's a child, a husband, a wife, a, a single guy that you're dating, a single girl that you're dating, your Western students, your education, that whatever it may be that you are willing and you will commit to doing whatever God is calling you and I to let go of. Mission members, Brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, visitors, 
I want you to know as, as one of your pastors, and I know that this is true of Pastor Justin as, as well, is that I, I love you. But we're that rich young man. We are the rich young man. If you don't think I'm talking about you, it only proves further your deception of how clinchly we're, how tight you're clinching, how tight I'm clinching to these things. See, encountering the resurrected Jesus, the biblical Jesus, it wrecks your life. It wrecks your life. Show me any example of a faithful man or woman inside of the New Testament that when they encounter this Jesus, they, they live like most of us in this room. You know the difference? They really know Jesus, and he ultimately really knows them. And yet our, our churches inside of America, we're, we're filled with, with this idea that I can... Be complacent in my relationship with Jesus. No, when you encounter the real Jesus, you cannot be indifferent. He takes your dreams. He takes your hopes. He leads you to paths that are very narrow and not traveled by many. And yet so many people are in our culture because they're cultural Christians, they're, they're nominal Christians, that means they're Christians by name only. They're claiming this devotion and this allegiance to Jesus, and yet nothing in our lives reflects this. When you and I encounter the real Jesus, he destroys the idols of our lives, whatever it may be. If you're following Jesus that is, that is cool with you claiming to have a relationship with him while simultaneously also cleaning to blank, whether that's money, again, fame, your family. Let me say something about this because this is a very tight tension thing. So many times in regards to our family, which I am extremely in, in and four, I agree with the Puritans. It is small church. Our families are. We should conduct ourselves as such. But we must be very careful, brothers and sisters, not to use our families as excuses for our disobedience to God. It's not what we see in the New Testament. It's not what we see from faithful you are to pastor them, husbands, wives. You are to help your husband in the pastoring them. But as the pendulum, like we, we shifted, because for, there for a while, um, there was like no Christendom in the home. There was no teaching. The father was way absent. But now the excuse is, is for why we can't be obedient is, well, you know, I, I can't take away from family time. I'm telling you. What a slippery slope. And you, again, we can fill in that blank with a lot of things. Fame or my, my job. I, I, I can't be obedient to this because it's, it's my job and I got to make money and all, all, all this or fame or, or, or fortune. I got to have food. When we encounter the real Jesus, when we have met with the real Jesus, it changes everything. 
See, God tells us that he spits the lukewarm person out of his mouth. There's no such thing as bench warmers. There, there are no such things as those who can straddle the fence, ride the fence. And I, I'm afraid that one of us, or many of us, and myself included, this is I'm fearful before you this morning, is, as many of us, myself included, are, are trying to have one foot in the kingdom of God and, and one foot in this world. And yet Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 tells us that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Is Jesus your everything? Is Jesus my treasure? Above everything that this world has to offer, everything above your marriage, above your children, Above what you will eat today, or what cars we will drive, or, 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 or where our, our houses would be, or where, what clubs that we can have, or, or, or whatever it will be, we cannot serve good two masters. We will hate this. Hate the blank. Let your love for Christ be so rich. I want my love for Jesus to be so rich and so intimate that even my love for my wife appears to be hate in comparison. God demands our undivided loyalty. Jesus saw wealth as a major hindrance to following him. And brothers and sisters, we are all wealthy. You are the rich. I am the rich. If you live inside of the United States, we are the rich. And yes, the only reason why we would say that we're not wealthy is because we're comparing ourselves to the other one part of the 1% that we are also a part of. Yes, there are varying degrees of, of wealth and, and consumption and all these sorts of things, but if, if we're in America, you have a job, a place to stay, a car, some food, you are in the richest class in the world. I'm convinced more and more daily that living in America is the hardest place to follow Jesus. And it's primarily because of Benjamin and Lincoln and what this when it's given to me gives me that sense of accomplishment and that I've arrived it feeds my pride it feeds that arrogance look at what I've done I have wealth. Many around the globe would long to have what we have. Yet Jesus, to Jesus, our wealth is dangerous. We are consumed with consumerism, needing more and more, don't we? More comfort, more luxury. Have you ever noticed the things that you would never miss work for, we will miss church for? Have you ever noticed that if you're needing a rest and a break, first things that go are your daily quiet times, 
Wednesday night missional community group, Sunday morning gathering. We allow our jobs to dictate our schedules. And I'm all for Sabbath. I'm all for rest. Please hear me. But I want you to understand that this is deception. We, and let's face it, man, I want an easy life. Don't you? I want, I want an easy life. And as you drive home today, I want you to reflect on this. How many restaurants and mattress stores does Bowling Green need? I guess we eat a lot in bed. I don't know what it is. I mean, we're extremely hungry and tired in our city. Have y'all noticed? Am I the only one? There's a mattress store next to a fast food place like on every corner. You drive through town today and you notice mattress store, restaurant, mattress store, restaurant, mattress store, restaurant. I mean, if, if I won't have it in my home, I won't deliver it to yours. I went to high school, Mr. Trent. If, if, if car shopping, you know, makes you nervous, come to the home. Legendary service. Gilly Hyde, Glasgow. Don't even get me started on unicorn frappuccinos. Luxury. Comfort. But we can't do this. We can't do this because we don't, we don't have the, the money to do that. We don't have the, the funds to do that. So I want you to write this down. Sell ads are the new and acceptable pornography. Sell ads are the new and acceptable pornography. We are bombarded by ads, not simply selling us a product, but they are trying to sell us and get us to follow after him. They are, they are ultimately selling us a way of life. Do you remember Homer's Odyssey? There was this group of beautiful women, and they would be on the, the cliffs, naked, singing. Hello. All right? I, I don't know what they were singing. But whenever ships would pass by, the, the, the sailors would be just engrossed in the beauty and the sound of those sirens. And yet, as they, they would turn their ship like they're hypnotized, and, and they would ultimately drive their ships into the reef, and they would die. So are ads. And that pornography is dumped on us in everything. You can't go to the Christian bookstore without them trying to upsell you on something. Would you like to buy a $5 Bible? I actually, I've got 30 at the house. But sure, it's only $5. Buy, buy, buy. This is what you need. You need this product. You need this comfort. We can't even pump gas anymore without a television staring at us and giving us entertainment while we pump. You ever, it cuts off your gas pump before you find out what happened? I'm like, crap. I guess I'm the only real person around here. <laughs> How many of us 
watch television while holding an iPhone so we can have dual screen experience. We get bored watching our favorite shows, so we have to have something entertain us while we're being entertained, while eating Cheetos. It's funny. It's really scary. Can have a conversation with people at lunch without what? In a movie, drives me nuts. Go to the theater, blue faces light up all over the place. Why? Because we had, this is what I can accomplish. This is something I have to hold on to. Many of us would agree that the prosperity gospel is heresy. And yet our lifestyles reflect the complete opposite. This sin is a parasite that lives within us as its host. And the more you feed it, the more you buy, the more you purchase, the more I buy, the more I purchase, the more I, I feed that, that parasite inside of me. And as I, I feed that parasite inside of me, that, that parasite gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if something gets bigger, the more it has to be fed to stay alive. Yet, the pattern of the Christian life is one of sacrifice. Our hearts cannot be revealed in giving up something we already hate. Can it? I mean, if God asked me to get rid of Brussels sprouts out of my diet, okay. I think they smell like feet. <laughs> and they taste even worse. That's not, that's not a hard sacrifice for me. Now, bacon, that's a sacrifice. God, notice, God could ask this man to do anything. Jesus could ask this man to do anything. But he asked him to do the very thing. That would have been the hardest for him to do. It would be impossible for him to do in and of himself. And yet that's what he's completely convinced is. That the best way to break the slavery of money and, and clinching is to purchase only what we need. Is, is to stay out of debt and to give more and more and more of our finances away every year, give more of our wealth away instead of jumping into what was mirrored to us, this idea that you start out in an apartment and you end up and die in a mansion. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that is, that is not how God sees things. Your mansion is in heaven, not on this earth. So live smaller to give more, to be generous. Even right now, I mean, as a church, we've got to raise like $10,000 for us to send three people to Africa. I think that's pretty expensive, but that's exactly what it cost to do that. You know what I wish I could do? I wish I could secretly just go to my bank account today and write $10,000 and give it to the church. 
You know why I can't? Because I've made more than $10,000. I started working when I was 14. I'm now 37. I've made more than $10,000 since I was 14. And you know the reason why I can't? Sin. It's the only reason why I can't. The only reason why I can't live as generous as I want to live is because of sin in my life. It's the only reason. Jesus is not saying that every wealthy person should give up their wealth. So before you live, I'm not not saying that every person, because for some wealthy people, God gives them lots of money to be able to to be generous. I know of people that are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but you would never know it. Because they live like they make 50. And they give away hundreds of thousands of dollars. I know of pastors who won't take royalty from their books because they're so fearful of becoming wealthy and missing the kingdom. But Jesus is saying to each and every one of us that we must be willing to give up. And and I would suggest that for most of us it is wealth. My concern is that Like the rich young man, we come to Jesus, we come to the gathering, we sing songs, we lift our hands, we we served in some capacity, we tip God as we leave a few bucks, we we nod along to a few of the points in the sermon. You may even make down a a note and say, man, that that was good, that was tweetable right there. You may laugh at some of my quirkiness, you may take communion and walk away from the gathering and there's no change, there's no transformation Am I the only person in the room that that grieves? Hmm. Many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world will die for their faith. Yet currently in America, we have the freedom to live for Him and don't. In tears, this Friday night, some of us went to it's a secret church. It's a gathering of fifty to 60,000 people all over the globe for this like forever long Bible study. It's intense. It's like putting your mouth on a fire hydrant and turning it on. I mean, it's, it's intense. They show this video of these Iranian Christians. And I sat there and I wept. Specifically, at the dedication that these people were willing to give, at the cost of following Jesus, they were willing to give anything to follow Jesus. And they told the story of this young lady, and she's speaking to us on this camera, and she's like, I was raised in a Christian home in Iran. Imagine that for a moment. I was raised in a Christian home in Iran. These aren't cultural Muslims. She's like, when I got the age to be married, she's like, I met this man. And as I began to talk to this man, we began friends, became friends. And as time went on, I, I told him that I was a Christian and he was a Muslim. And I continued to share my faith with him. I shared my faith with him. I shared my faith with him. She said, after months of being with this young man, he came to me and he said, I don't remember what her name was. He said, I want you to know that, that I love Jesus now. And I love you. And I want to marry you. 
So she got married to this man. In about two months, he refused to let her to go to church. He denounced every bit of it. He embraced his Muslim activity again. She stays with him, faithful. She's a Christian. Even though her husband is beating her because of her beliefs, she gets pregnant. She has the baby. And she secretly has this little Bible that she's reading and she wants to give her daughter one day. Her husband comes home from work and he sees the Bible and he beats her. Then he hands her a certificate of divorce from the judges, takes the baby, and leaves. She goes to the to the courthouse, she's fighting this. And they say to this, to this woman, imagine this mamas. He says, the judges say, all you have to do is denounce Jesus and we will give you your daughter back. And this young lady looks at those judges and says, I will not denounce Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus. She hasn't seen her baby in 12 years years. You give up your baby to follow Jesus? To be obedient to Jesus? God is calling us to be willing to be open-handed. Greed causes us to clench our hand. The gospel compels us to live open-handed. How many of us cannot be generous because of, again, these sinful things that we have done inside of our, our, our lives? And yet Jesus is calling us to be generous, to be lavish in our giving of time, talent, and treasure, to be sacrificial, that we should be giving not just because we can tip God a little bit and not think anything about that money, but we should be living lives of being sacrificial to the point with our time, talent, and treasure that, man, it's tough. you got to work on your, your calendar with your, your wife or your husband or your kids, and you've got to juggle all these things, but a major portion of that is you living on mission as a single or as a, a, a married couple or as a family. Jesus wants us to be our joy. See, you and I can do moral things, good things, obedient things, and yet them not be our joy. Jesus is after your joy. He's wanting you to understand that he is your greatest treasure and that there's a greater treasure even waiting for you and I inside of heaven than anything that this world can give us. So they ask the question, what can a man do then to be saved? And what does God say? And this is where we get gospeled. Listen, I don't make this up. This is what the Bible says. What must a man do to be saved? Well, he's got to say this prayer exactly right. You know, he's got to learn all the correct hand language or hand motions to the Christian songs. When to do a one hand, when to do a two hand, when to do the windshield wiper, all right? You've you got to learn all those things. You've got to give this money to be saved. And, and Jesus says, What? 
all of this, with man, it is impossible. What is he saying? Man, it is, it is impossible for you to put God above all other gods in your life. It is impossible for you to save yourself by your good works, as this young man was doing, saying, man, look at what I've done. I can do all these things. And Jesus looks at those disciples and he says, man, it is not your riches, it is not your accomplishments, it is not your wealth, it is not your blank, it is not whatever it is that you think that you have done, that you've gotten it just right, and finally God shows you favor. That that is not the gospel, but we are gospel then this morning and realizing this, what is impossible inside of Eric Baker is possible with God, that all things are possible. Nothing I've mentioned earlier and all of what I said it can save you. Giving all your stuff away can't save you, though some of us should. It is simply a response to those who have been saved. Jesus is saying, your self-righteousness will never save you. It is impossible. Why can children come to me? Because they have absolutely nothing. Jesus will use whatever means necessary to reveal us that we are spiritually depraved. It is impossible for a leopard to change its spots, for an Ethiopian to change its skin color. It is impossible for a man to shift his allegiance from wealth or whatever to God without God had work in that man or woman's heart. May we see in the midst of, of just some God killing some dirtiness inside of us, may we also see the hope that he lays before us that with God all things are possible, that Jesus is not just simply useful, but that Jesus is precious, that he is not simply our duty, but he wants it to be our delight. Do you, brothers and sisters, visitors, guests, friends, do you treasure Christ above all things? What in your life reveals that he is supreme? If I was to look at your calendar, your bank accounts, what, what reveals that there is sacrificial giving of your time, talent, and treasure for God? Because what seems impossible, man, I don't, I don't know how we're going to come up with $10,000, man. I, as, as Mission Church, we need a home. We need some brick and mortar. Not because that makes us the church. You and I make us the church. Jesus makes it the church. I mean, we need a home. Home costs money in this culture, right? And I, I don't know how we're going to do that. Do you understand? You got a crazy pastors. We want to see thousands of churches planted from 50 people. We want to see hundreds of kids in foster care and adopted through us. We want to, I've said this, I don't get you say it. We want it to be impossible for anyone to drive up I 65 without Jesus saving them. So sin, Satan, and death has to create a bypass around this city. And we're foreknown as don't drive through there. Jesus will save you. All these things seem impossible. Salvation, it is impossible, and if anything that we can do. And yet with God, all things are possible. You cannot save yourself. I cannot save myself, but Jesus in his sovereign will and his sovereign grace looks past your self-biased religiosity and righteousness and good works. And in spite of those things, saves wretched men and women.
What are you getting from blank this morning that you're not getting from God? There is no way that I can do this teaching justice this morning. I can't. I, 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 knew, I come into this as I do every week knowing I'm going to fail miserably at, tr- at preaching every truth that God has for us in this word. And yet, with much joy at the realization, it is not upon me. But it is on him to do the impossible. Same is true for this passage. Just been rocked this week dealing with these issues, wrestling in my own life, clenching tightly to these things, saying, I can't do this because of I got a kid with special needs or I've got a house to pay for, student loans to pay for, can't do this, can't do that because of these things, and I've got all these excuses that make living on God's mission seem impossible, and yet God reminds me in His Word that all things are possible. All things.